Uh, welcome to Grace Toronto Church. My name is Lyndon, one of the pastors here. If you're new here, uh, welcome to you again. Uh, at this point in our service, we'll be turning our attention to the reading and preaching of God's Word. We've been wake- making our way through the Psalms this summer, and this week is our final, uh, our final sermon in that series, and wrestling with God through the Psalms. And so this morning, we will be looking at Psalm 145, and to help us with that, John. Psalm 145, Song of Praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God is great. God is good. And we thank him for our food. By his hand, we all are led. Actually, sorry. That's how my family did it growing up, this prayer. But it's actually... Um, By his hand, we all are fed. Thank you for our daily bread. Amen. This is a common children's prayer that maybe some of you are familiar with. It's a common prayer that we prayed growing up in my house before meals. And its claims seem very basic. God is great. God is good. And somehow... Even though my dad worked to provide food for us and my mom worked to prepare food for us, somehow we were to envision all of this food as coming from the hand of God, being provided to us from our Heavenly Father. By His hand, we were being fed. He was the one feeding us, and actually, more broadly, He was the one who was feeding the whole world. And these are precisely the claims being made here in this Psalm 145 that God is great, that God is good, and that all the good that we experience is ultimately from his hand. You'll notice that it's a radically God-centered psalm. 
a good way to end our series. It's radically God-centered from start to finish. It begins, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. And then it goes on to say that the Lord is great, the Lord is gracious, the Lord is good, the Lord is faithful, the Lord upholds all, the Lord is righteous, the Lord preserves, the Lord is near. It speaks about his kingdom, his works, his deeds, his acts, his praise. It's all about him. And this, I think, is jarring for us. Let's be honest. We don't come to church to hear sermons about God. We come to church to hear sermons about us. About how to improve our lives. What we're doing wrong, what to do instead in order to get the things that we want. And this song serves to shake us out of our inevitable self-centeredness and to center us on the God for whom we were made. It lifts our gaze to God. And so enables us to see ourselves as we are, as creatures of God, utterly dependent on him, utterly for him. So while we get caught up with our concerns, our troubles, our fears, our desires, here we are instructed, look to God. Look to him. And so find him to be your help, your peace, your joy. This psalm is designed to lead us to lift our eyes to God and find that the Lord is great and the Lord is good. In a world where we're prone to think that God is small, unimportant, insignificant, here we find that God is great In a world where we're prone to think that God is bad or evil or unjust or undependable, here we find that God is good. God is great and God is good. First, God is great. Look at verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Again, while our world would have us believe that God is small and insignificant, you know, relationship with God, just one of many options for how we can live this life, this psalm would have us think otherwise. It insists that God is not just one option among many, but he is the only way. He is everything. He's great, even worthy of the praise of our entire lives. But do we think about God this way? Do you think about God this way? Even for those who are Christians here, Do we think, feel, live as though God is that great? Or do we tend to set ourselves up as the great ones? Our concerns, our our ambitions, our comforts, our plans, our purposes. Whether you're a Christian or not, the question is appropriate to consider. Do you live for the greatness of God, of the maker of all things, or have you settled for living for your own greatness and your own glory? Maybe you're here and wonder sometimes why life is so flat, uncolorful, meaningless. Have you considered for whom you're living? 
Because the scriptures clearly state that to live a self-centered existence is to miss life. Nothing short of missing life and what it's for, what you were made for. And to live a God-centered existence is to find life. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, our psalmist exclaims, and his greatness is unsearchable. Unsearchable, which is not to say that God is unknowable, because he's knowable, he's revealed himself, he's made himself known, but it's simply to say that God cannot be mapped out. He can't be searched the way an officer can search your car. And in fact, If your God is a God who is searchable, can be mapped out, figured out, analyzed, and scrutinized, you've got the wrong God. It's just not the God of the scriptures. The God who is the Lord is the unsearchable God beyond us, too great to grasp, will not be figured out. Systematic theologians, beware. God will be known adequately even intimately, but never exhaustively or comprehensively. Our psalmist goes on in verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Note that God's greatness here isn't some abstract greatness. It's not just that God is great in some abstract sense that we can't really understand or see, but it's marked out by what he's done. Marked out by his works, we're told, his acts, the great things that God has done in creation, in redemption. These are the things that speak of his greatness. God has done things in history, his works, and these are the things that put his greatness on display. But there's a problem here, I would suggest. If God's greatness is shown by what God's done in history, in particular times and places, how are we all to know his greatness, see his greatness, experience his greatness? It's a problem because if the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, is known by doing concrete actions in history at certain times and places, this means that God could only be known as we, people, tell of the things that he's done. This is important because it seems to me that the God of our popular imagination is not a God like this, whose fame needs to be told from one generation to the next. Instead, we assume that if there is a God, this God must be generic, showing himself in the same way to all people, regardless of historical circumstances. But this is not the God of the Bible. Maybe that's obvious. Instead, What we find here is a God who reveals himself to some in certain ways at certain times and tells these people to tell of his greatness, his deeds, his acts to others. And so it seems that the God of the Bible is determined. He is relentlessly determined to be made known through people. Maybe that just sounds like the most, you know, Self-evident thing in the scriptures. Uh, But it's important to note this, that he's not about bypassing his people in order to reveal himself to individuals without his people. Instead, 
God is absolutely committed to expanding and extending his kingdom, making himself known through a people who will declare his mighty acts, who will commend his works from one generation to another. So church, as the people of God, this is our great call. That the greatness of God is not simply seen in creation, though it's seen there too, of course. But it's also a story to be told. It's a story to be passed on. It's to be shared from one generation to the next. From people who know God's greatness, who have heard the story, who have seen of his goodness, to people who have not yet heard. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And he goes on in verse 6. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. God is great. Second, God is good. Beginning in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is who God is. It's how God revealed himself to Moses, if you remember. Almost the exact same phrase. God's own testimony about God's self in Exodus. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It's who God is. And this is who God's people know God to be, that he's good, he's gracious, he's kind. But David doesn't stop there. His claim is more far-reaching. Is broader. He's not just making a claim about who God is to some here, but who God is to all. Not just that God is good to some, but David goes on, the Lord is good to all, he says in verse 9. And his mercy is over all that he has made. And then to the second part of verse 13, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is good to all, it says. Faithful in all his words, it says. Kind in all his works, it says. He satisfies the desire of every living thing. And if you're paying any attention at all, you'll know that these are some mighty big claims that the psalmist is here making, especially in light of the kind of world in which we live. The Lord is good to all, What about the people living on the streets with mental health problems, histories of abuse and neglect, children with negligent parents, babies born with debilitating problems? And then what about you? With your unmet desires, your profound disappointments and sufferings, not to mention whole nations throughout the world experiencing war, famine, terrorism, sweeping poverty, injustice, it all begs the question, doesn't it? Is the Lord really that good? Is he really kind and faithful? 
Does he really uphold anyone, let alone everyone, who's falling? Or raise up anyone who's bowed down? Does he satisfy the desire of any, let alone every living thing? How do we understand these claims that the Lord is good to all, his mercy over all? How do we understand this? Well, such grand and striking claims only make sense when made in the context of the Bible's claims about the kind of world in which we live, where humanity, in the beginning, turned from God and so plunged ourselves into a dark and broken world. It's called sin. It's called depravity. God gave us every good gift, even the gift of himself. And we turned from him, went our own way, and continue to go our own way even now. And the question we must ask is, when a world turns away from that which is light, love, and life, what can it find but decay, darkness, and death? When it turns from the one who is life itself, what can we find but death? This is the world in which we find ourselves. This is us. We've done this. And we do this. And yet, even as the Lord did with Adam and Eve when they first turned from him, he comes to us. He covers our shame. He provides us clothes. He cares for us. And it's in this sense, in this sense, God's good, goodness to us in response to our own fallenness and brokenness, God's continued faithfulness to us, it's in this sense that we can join with David and say, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Despite our rebellion, he's the God who's ever giving gracious gifts to all the world, all the time, everywhere, every morning you wake up. His mercy is new every morning. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. He's the one who creates all things, sustains all things. He's the giver of every good gift so that every good gift you and I experience all the time, every day, everything good can only be understood as a good gift from our Heavenly Father. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. He's righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Do you know this to be true of God? Do you know his care in your life? Do you know who it is that gave you life? Provided you with your first breath and the breath you're now breathing? Gave you eyes to see and legs for walking? and even provides you with the most mundane of things, provided you with the coffee that you drank this morning, with the raw materials, with the material means to purchase, to drink, to enjoy, from the greatest gifts to the smallest gifts, all things from the hand of a good God. God is great. God is good. And so we rightly thank him for our food, 
It's by his hand we all are fed. And even when things go terribly wrong, because we're living in a world turned from him, broken by us, under his judgment, when things go wrong, who is it that upholds you, continues to provide for you, and welcomes you to find peace and joy and life in him? Our psalmist instructs us, it's the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. But maybe you're here and you're still unconvinced. How can anyone who's ever experienced real suffering, deep suffering of this life, still pray these kinds of prayers that the Lord is good to all? And if that's you, it's worth taking a moment to consider who prayed this prayer in the first place. None other than King David, we're told. David, the one who as a young man was relegated to the fields to tend the sheep while everybody else did the important work. David hunted down to be killed, though he had done no wrong. David. The one whose best friend, Jonathan, soulmate, you could call it, along with other friends and family, were slaughtered in battle. David, whose adultery led to murder, whose shame led to judgment, and whose son and heir was taken by God in infancy. David, eventually betrayed by his own son and closest friends. It's this David with a life marked by great victories and success, to be sure, but also deep pain, regret, and loss. It's this David who's the one who prays. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. And the question for us is, how might we pray the same prayer? How might we say the same? Is it possible that you, sitting where you are, even in the midst of suffering and loss, might raise your eyes to heaven with David and pray, I look to you, God. And you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. I look to you, God. And Lord, you're righteous in all your ways. And you're kind in all your works. Well, here's the thing. The only way that we can pray this way is in looking not to this King David, but to the true King David, the one to whom David himself pointed. Jesus, the Messiah, the great King of Israel. Because it's only in Jesus that we find that God, the God who made us and sustains us, is also 
the one who is so committed to us that even while we were still sinners, bound for death, he would come and suffer with us, for us, all that we might live. Uh, A friend's family about a week ago experienced uh, the beyond tragic loss of a young woman. And in the midst of this kind of pain, in this broken and bloodied world, what do we have to say for ourselves? Us who believe in a good God, who is kind in all his works, what do we have to say for ourselves? Well, here's what we have to say. Our God is not a God who stands apart from us, distant from us, is indifferent to us in our suffering. But our God is a God who comes to us and who suffers with us. The clearest picture that we have of who God is for us is the cross. And so, in this sense, our only answer to suffering is to look to the bloodied cross, where in some mysterious way the blood of God himself is poured out for us. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. And verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy, and he will. All of the wicked will be destroyed, ruined for all eternity. This is God's promise. But it stands alongside another promise. That though every one of us stands before God as the wicked who should be destroyed, Jesus stood as the wicked for us. He took the destruction of God on himself for us, that God might hear our cry and save us. This is the good news of the gospel, that not one of us here is righteous, not one of us stands as righteous before God, but all who will look to him, raise our eyes to him, will find that there is one who is righteous, and he has given himself that the desires of every living thing might be satisfied. And so it's appropriate that we close with the closing words of the psalm. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you as your creatures created by you and for you and come before you as our great God and a God who is good to us, who is kind in all your ways. And Father, we confess that we don't always understand these things in light of our present sufferings. Father, we confess 
that we are often confused by what goes on in this world. And yet, it's to you that we look, knowing that you are for us, that you've given yourself for us, that we might find life and light and hope and salvation in you. We ask that you would grant this gift again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Time for a few questions. We do have time for a few questions. Uh, This is the interactive part of our service here at Grace Toronto. If you have a question, I invite you to put up your hand, a question pertaining to the, the passage or to anything that was said in the sermon, and I will do my best to engage you with your question. Who's first? Any hands? I see a hand. Thank you. Yes, thank you. That's a a perceptive question, uh, and I'll try to repeat it succinctly. Uh, The question is, uh, uh, there's the notion in this passage that the Lord satisfies every living thing, and then it says later on, the Lord satisfies the desires of those who fear him. Okay, good, and there seems to be disparity there, right? Uh, Very good question. So this just brings up the tension of uh, what you might call the loves of God. Um, That God loves in different ways. Okay. Um, uh, And this is is important. Thanks thanks for raising that. Uh, The first way is often referred to as God's common grace. Okay. Uh, That God is good to all. He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the unrighteous and the righteous, on the just and the unjust. He's good to all. And that is certainly the focus of this passage, okay, of this psalm, um, that God is good to all, okay, and that's, and that's true. Uh, the other way that you could take it, so, so there's kind of, there's two different ways, two different pits you could fall in here. The one is to say that God, God's love is for all in such a way that it becomes very nebulous, ambiguous, and kind of meaningless, and, and, and completely sidesteps questions of God's justice and dealing with sin. It's just, he just loves, he's kind of a happy God who just loves everybody. Okay. That would be one way to fall, one, one ditch to fall into. The other would be that God only loves some, okay, his elect, his chosen people, those who, have follow, those who follow him. He, he only loves those ones and everybody else he, he is either ambivalent towards or hates them. Right? And it's just kind of this holy huddle, as it were. 
Right? Um, just, just us. God just loves us and everybody else. And what the scriptures do for us, what this passage does for us, is it holds these two in tension. That God is a God who both loves all. His goodness is towards all. And this is the sense in which I think it's getting at uh, fulfilling the desires of all. He will, uh, he will bring all things to fruition. He, he has a, a, a telos would be the word. A, a, a direction in which he's going and taking all things. Okay, to their fulfillment. And yet there's also a sense in which he fulfills the desires, which I think you're right to point out, as a distinct kind of thing. Right? Um, uh, to fulfill the desires of his people who will be with him forever in that eternal bliss of being with God. So uh, those two things are both at work together in this, in this passage. Um, it's probably good now for us to move on to the Lord's Supper. If, if you have other questions, I'll be here afterwards, after the service. In going to the Lord's Supper, we're not going to something other than what just happened. Uh, the Lord's Supper is simply a display of everything I was trying to communicate, that God has given himself to us, right? and he gives himself to us even in these concrete uh, elements. Right? The, the, the Lord Jesus took bread and wine, and he gave them to us as a gift of his own uh, representing his own presence with us, right? his body broken for us that we might live and have life, his blood poured out for us that we might have, have life, and drinking and feeding on him. And this is what this table is about. It's a table of grace that proclaims grace to us, that God has done everything necessary for our life and salvation if we will only come to him and feed on him. And that's what we're going to do now together. It was on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed that he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And a little later, in much the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins as often as you drink it. Do this in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. The way we do this here at Grace Toronto, all of the bread that will be passed around is gluten-free. The wine is red. The grape juice isn't. And we invite all baptized believers to participate in this meal with us. This is not the table of this church, but the table of our Lord it's his invitation to his people to come and to feed on him. Let me pray and the table will be open. Father, together now we lift our eyes to you, even as we participate in this meal together, feeding on your body broken for us and your blood shed for us that we might have life. And we thank you for the gift that you've given us in Christ that we might live indeed. Bind us together now. May we have a sense of your nearness to us and our communion with you, even as we eat and drink together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The table is open.